Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Thanks for um, coming out. Um, perhaps you'd like to ask some questions, and I can probably, I feel more comfortable doing that rather than just speaking. Well, well, let me start. If, excuse me, I have this flu. It's, it's, it's not contagious. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I made this film years ago. I mean, it was like 1973 or somewhere along in there. And it, was, it wasn't for distribution or anything like that. I mean, when we were making films, Hailey Green was in the back somewhere as well. We were in, we were in film school. And uh, it was a time when we were trying to make films that was going to do something positive in a way. And this was a film that was made in, in response to films that were made to try to show exploitation in the black community workshops and things like that. And there was sort of formula, and um, it was a sort of social realism kind of a thing. You know, you do ABC, and, and, and this other thing would happen. And, and I sort of lived in this environment, and things weren't quite working out the way you hope it would. You know, the, most things, the most one can do is just endure you know, there are circumstances, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, sure, you can go to school and get educated and things like that, but the people that I grew up with, this is their lives. And so I wanted to do a film that would, that would reflect what they were experiencing. But I had been going to college at the time, and, and you know, and you, you experience a change in your life, and you, and you realize that, you can, you know, at the time, I'm sort of jumping around, excuse me, but there was this notion that if you were an artist or something like that, you spoke for the black community. And you find out right away that you don't, and, and sometimes in embarrassing ways. And so I was very much aware of it. And so I didn't want to make a movie that was going to, I mean, I was going to impose my values on it. I just wanted to make a movie that had all these incidents in it and somehow uh, reflected a narrative, told a story, it came back on itself. And you got a sense of these people's lives, you know. And, and that was the idea behind this film. And again, um, at the time it was made, it wasn't like Park City and, and you can make a film and get a three-picture deal. Um, we made films be, because we thought, well, it was the thing to do, and we had a job, a nine-to-five, and uh, and they were made, and hopefully someone would show them in churches and things like that, and uh, small groups, I mean, you know, to have some sort of, what do you call these groups? I forget now, you know, whatever, um, to, to, to affect social change. And uh, then... Um, Highly went to Howard and they had a conference and it was screened there years, years later. It was like left in a can and it got picked, you know, word of mouth from there and it sort of got around and uh, people got interested in it and, and um, you know, it's gotten where it is. I, I, well, that's my spiel. Yes? Can, can you talk about films and filmmakers that have inspired your work, though? Make oh, filmmakers thanks. that you um, Well, now, actually, um, <clears throat> I admire just about every filmmaker who makes a movie. I mean, <clears throat> I say that seriously because after you've made movies and feature films, <clears throat> it's a war, you know, and you can really, you know, appreciate, you know, uh, just staying in the business, you know, and just getting the film done. Um, because, um, again, um, when I was making this film, I mean, I had all the control. You know, it was done over the weekends and things like that, and it was, you know, friends were acting in it and so forth. And there wasn't this, like, steamroller effect. You had to, to, you know, every day there were so many shots or, or setups you had to do. 
where now, I mean, almost 90% of what I have to do has nothing to do with the creative side of, 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 of film. You know, I have very little time to deal with act, actors and very little time to deal with the concept of filmmaking. It's all about politics and, 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 and about trying to outwit somebody else, you know, a producer or something like that. And so, um, and I, I know there's a lot of filmmakers who get a lot of flack because, well, well, this film fails or whatever is in the box office, but there's so many reasons why a film fails. And so, as long as the films they make are not just, you know, pornographic and things like that and perpetuate this myth about black people and things like that. I mean, if there's something decent about them and it still fails, I really admire that person, you know, as a filmmaker. But, you know, if you, like Osmonds and Bend, for example, and, um, you know, there's Hiley, there's Julie, there's... Um, there's a number of filmmakers I, I really admire. Joris Evans, a documentary filmmaker, is one I really, really like as well. Uh, yes, sir? Uh, the main actor, um, did he have a message? It was a continuance in his depression-like acting. Was there a message there? Well, yeah. I mean, I thought about this character because one, I used to catch the bus to school, and uh, I ran into this kid. Um, he was younger than I was at the time. He was a teenager. And he worked in a slaughterhouse. And I couldn't imagine a young man working in a slaughterhouse, you know, killing animals, and the kind of toll it must have on him. You know, because I, I did the film at a slaughterhouse, and, and I, in the next few years, I was a vegetarian. You know, uh, now I'm not, but I mean, you know, <laughs> I wish I was, but, but it, it, it really affects you, you know, and, um, uh, you know, you smell blood, I mean, and, and it gets into your system and stuff like that. And, uh, and you become dysfunctional, I think. And, and this is what happened with this guy. You know, it was, he was living a nightmare. He went to work. And it was a nightmare, you know. And so it was, a, you know, it affected his family and everything else. And it was, it, it was not only the slaughterhouse, but his, his environment as well. Uh, yes. No, uh, the thing about independent film is that um, and it was done very cheap. You have to sort of script everything and and um, and storyboard it because you know every the. the the most expensive thing is the film itself. And so at UCLA, that was one of the conditions. You really had to learn, you know, you had to know what you want to do. And uh, it was all scripted. And, uh, and it's interesting because um, I learned a lot working with kids on, on, on this film. Uh, the little girl, for example, I remember one of the days early in the shooting of kids, I was trying to tell her to go to the, um, the kitchen, you know, the, the faucet, and get some water. And so I... Uh, I was trying to get down to her level. And I said, I want you to go over to you and get the water and come back and look at your father. <laughs> okay, and uh, so we, she got that? Yeah, okay. So we start the camera and she goes over and get the water. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, uh, and so I, I said, no, 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 no. Don't do it like that. Go over like this and get the water and turn down. And she says, okay. So she goes over. I said, no, no, no. And so I did it over and over again, you know, because we were in distress and all this sort of thing. I said, no, no, do it like that. What's wrong? And so she said, I did just like you said, you know. And so it dawned on me and said, yeah, and she did, you know, exactly what I said. And then from that moment on, all you had to do is tell the idea, the concept. You know, she said, you know, you're angry with your father. And this, it was like that, you know. Kids are very smart. You know, adults, I don't know. I had more trouble with adults. <laughs> yes? That was one of the things that. So 
talk more about uh, what you quoted uh, in the newspaper is talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Can oh. you speak more specifically about that and how you think that? I'm using when people say, you know, quote, you know, and something I said in the paper, I always deny, so I didn't say that, yeah, because I'm always misquoted. No, um, one of the problems about being in this business, it's a rat race, and um, it's very difficult to sort of advance film to some extent, you know, because it's, 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 it's a struggle with people who own the, own the means of production and distribution, and not really interested in, in film as an art. It's a business, you know, and I didn't realize, I mean, I should have realized that. But your whole training is film as an art. And there are things that people in the Harlem Renaissance were able to do in literature. In essence, they were trying to get away from this sort of minstrel kind of a situation that posed itself on black literature up until that time. It's not for a diverse audience. you know. It's generally for a white audience. And so it's that concept continuously you're struggling against. Those people were able to... To, to sort of work out problems of character and things like that, trying to get away from that. We're always, you know, rooted into it. And also the fact that I think the other thing is that um, I find that there's this tendency to try to divide ethnic filmmakers, people of color. And, you know, the, the, the press might ask you, well, what do you think about Spike Lee? What do you think about so-and-so? What do you think about this? And they want you to say something negative, you know. And, it, and that doesn't help us at all. I mean... We should, as a group, we should be talking about character development, about themes and, and things like that, and, and, and how to bring in, I don't know, jazz, blues, all this sort of thing like that, and how we reflect folklore and stuff in the thing, and, and um, get to another point in film, rather than the gangs of the pimp and urban violence and stuff. Excuse me, I'm not talking to the mic, I see. Um, but, I mean, it's those things, you know. And you feel it very strongly when you're trying to pitch a story, and... They'll come up with this idea. You say, well, you know, that's, you, you feel a, a moral conflict. How do you get over that? Because I feel the same way. Well, I think the only way, you know, you have to, I guess, um, be determined. And, but I think the audience really has to play a part in it. There has to be some sort of relationship between the audience and the filmmaker. It has to get support from it. Because as long as these films are very popular, these urban films, they're going to continually make those films. And it's going to, like, for example, I did a film called The Sleep of Anger. It was like pulling teeth to get that film made. First of all, there wasn't, I just recognized an excellent filmmaker right out in front. Michael Amareda, you're talking about a filmmaker. Here's one here. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> um, yeah, excuse me. I, 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 I was a friend of mine's out there. Every time I get stuck, I always blame on the jet lag. Um, when I'm incoherent. I mean, this whole thing about family drama, you know, if, if it isn't uh, something typical, something they've experienced, I mean, seen before, that shows, you know, the mother prostitute, the, you know, the brothers and drugs and this and that and so forth, and one brother gets out, the, you know, the youngest one, he gets, you know, help from somebody. It's, you know, if it's not that, it's very difficult. You know, I, I, I mean, that's been my experience, and, and, you know, and I don't want to say, you know, that that's every, you know, everyone's experience, but that's been my experience. If, if I wanted to make a movie, I can just, you know, repeat that formula, and I'm sure I can get people interested. Uh, I, I think the lady here, and then I go this way. I saw it to sleep with anger as, as the only successful attempt to put magical realism on the screen. <laughs> well, um, I mean, terms I'm really weak on in a way. I'm, so you have to excuse me. Um, like uh, Gar- Garcia Martin. Yeah. 
No, I mean, when I, but I, I, I didn't think in terms of magical realism and this kind of thing. And, and when I was, when I make movies, it's usually, I'm just concerned about the story. And I was concerned about folklore and the absence of it in my community now. And, um, and I wanted to make a film that sort of, uh, raised questions about it, you know. And so I thought of a story that had a sort of an ordinary conflict and, and imposed a sort of a folkloric element to it. A structure, you know, this, this whole care, this thing of the trickster and and hairy man, you know, this Georgian folktale of a person who, you know, catches you out one night and steals your soul, and you have to sort of outwit him to get your soul back, you know, and and there's something magical about you know folklore anyway, you know, so that element was already there, but the whole idea is, does that exist? You know, I mean, does a character like Harry exist in the world, you know, and things like that? So I left it up to the audience to decide. Um, but I was only thinking in terms of just a story um, of, of of a man who comes to visit and he disrupts a family. And, you know, actually I looked at it in, in a very realistic way, I think. Yes? Was what, what, what I experienced, you know, being on the railroad tracks and going out and throwing <laughs> dirt and climbing on garages and well, I think one of the reasons for doing <clears throat> film was the fact that, you know, I, I, you know, you grew up in Hollywood films, and you don't, you see very little of that reflect your experience, your reality, and and then when you make, um, because I wanted to make films that reflected the things that you know I grew up with, and you find that there is this universal quality. I mean, a thing that we all sort of share in the same games and 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 things. And and I think that brings us all together in a sense because when I saw Ozu's films and Kurosawa's films, and I'd been brought up in American, you know, those propaganda films about the war and stuff like that, and then when I saw Ozu's films, I said, God, you know, where have I been? You know, and, and you just your world opens, you know, and you realize that there is an injustice going on, you know, and uh, and so that was that was I think most of us who started films in the '60s, uh, that's why we got involved in film. You know, the, the sort of, oh, I, I see I'm being hooked. <laughs> I, may, 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 may I ask this, this lady? Was, uh, Interesting, we uh, have the same thought. I thought that your soundtrack, for long as the narrative in the film, mm-hmm. and I wondered if that was something that you were going to pursue as part of your signature. Well, what happened was, uh, my mother used to play all these records, right? Over and over and over and over again. And I didn't like them until later on, until all of a sudden I was walking out in the street. Well, for example, like in The Sleep With Anger, uh, the opening record, uh, Sister Rosetta Thorpe, um, uh, Precious Memories. Um, my mother used to play it over and over and over again, just like all these records. And as I got older, I used to walk down the street and I was, there was this song going through my head. And I said, what did I hear? What is this? And I started piecing together. And and then I had to go back and look at these old 78s, you know, which were, some of them were broken and everything like that. You know, it was really tragic. And, and, and to find them, they're very difficult because you had to go to wear records and so forth. And so I realized then I should try to try to preserve them. You know, so I use film as a medium to do that as well. I just sort of, I'm going to put them someplace. And uh, <laughs> so basically that, that's, what's that? thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh. <laughs> um, good afternoon. Uh, it's a real honor to be offered an opportunity to speak with um, Charles Burnett again. The last time we talked was in... Um, Mm, I think it was in 85, I was out in L.A. visiting um, um, A.J. Fielder, Arthur J. Fielder, and uh, Julie Dash. 
and um, we talked. And when um, I ran into a friend of mine this week, and um, they said, I hear you're going to um, talk to Charles Burnett. Um, is, is he going to talk to you? He seems like a rather taciturn kind of <laughs> fellow, you know. And so, um, and, um, you know, I was always thinking, I always found uh, Charles the times I'd heard him speak and spoken with him to be, um, you know, uh, a modest and enigmatic kind of person. And so, uh, in a way, this is an opportunity for, for me to demystify Charles Burnett for myself. <laughs> um, I also, you know, I mean, he's, um, I'm not going to embarrass him by showering, you know, a lot of acc accolades on him, you know. Um, but um, he's, he's definitely, um, I think, a, um, a real model um, for, um, I think, anyone who's engaged in um, storytelling art, um, um, not just film, but I think literature as well. I think the, the script for um, Killer of Sheep, I think, holds up as um, literature if you ever get a, a chance to, to read it. Um, um, Reggie Hudlin said he, he considered Killer Sheep to be black cinema's invisible man, and um, I, I think that you can make a strong case for that. When I think about artists that I think of as models, it seems like they seem to come in three categories. Uh, there's a category I, I guess I call like the divas. Um, it's like Miles Davis or Billie Holiday or Jimi Hendrix, and it seems like you know everything that went on in every day of their life. It just seems to be documented somewhere. And then there are people I, I consider, I guess, like the covert divas, like um, Toni Morrison and Shaka Khan. They seem to be very extroverted public figures, but you really don't know anything at all about them. And then people like Charles and, and Ralph Ellison, who I guess I consider like the anti-divas, you know, they're like ghosts. They just, they do their work and they split and the rest of us just like, oh my God, you know. Um, so I guess the, the first thing I'd, I'd like to ask Charles about is, um, uh, it's really kind of question my mother would ask, you know, it's, it's a Florence State question, which is, um, <laughs> so who are your people? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, just your family background and what your folks did and that kind of thing, how they encourage you to get to this point. Well, you know, um, my folks are from Mississippi. And, you know, during that period of the 40s, they moved to L.A. and along with everyone else from Mississippi. And um, <laughs> settled in Los Angeles near Watts, you know. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, let me try to figure out what's going on here. Maybe the button that's to my lip or something. <laughs> um, I, I'm, that's better, I think. Um, as I was saying, my, my parents moved to L.A. My father's in the Army. And uh, <clears throat> I went to school there, public school, of course. And um, um, the, the school systems were very bad then. You know? <laughs> I remember being discouraged. I said, you, you, you're never going to be anything. You know? And... Uh, <clears throat> And so I went along with that in mind, and, uh, and I remember uh, <clears throat> I was waiting to be drafted, and a friend of mine was going to, uh, to LACC, and, um, and I went along with him, and I was waiting to be drafted, like I said, and uh, then I discovered this thing called student deferments, you know, and you have to take, you know, um, a full load of courses, and after that I was taking nothing but courses, you know, <laughs> and I think that's where my education started, you know, actually, and... Uh, but I had been, um, I was involved in, 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 in music at one point. I used to play a trumpet, and um, I thought I was going to be a musician, I think, and, uh, but that changed. 
Uh, my brother hawked my horn, and that was into that. Um, <laughs> and anyway, um, I was majoring in electronics, and uh, I uh, thought I was going to be an engineer. And uh, uh, but then these guys who were working at Autonetics and all these other places kept coming back and taking refreshing courses, and it was. And, and they sort of disillusioned me in a way because, you know, everyone was sort of waiting until they got to the point where they can retire, you know. And all this job insecurity was something that they always talked about, and I couldn't live like that. So um, I, I went to a, <laughs> actually I went to a job that was even more insecure film. Um, I thought of a uh, camera, you know, and uh, the only places that uh, had a school in cinematography were UCLA and SC at the time, which, which were very close, and so I went to USC. Tried again, it was very expensive, and so I went over to UCLA, which is extremely cheap, and that's where it all started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I'm wondering, you know, who in your your background made you really privilege um just storytelling and, and folklore and oral tradition and those kind of things. Well, I think people from Mississippi used to have this image that, you know, that they were all liars, you know, <laughs> and told stories, you know, and. Um, and that sort of thing has been following me to a certain extent, you know, because every time, I mean, because if you look at the record of people who are from Mississippi, there's a lot of talented people from Mississippi, you know, surprisingly so. And considering, you know, the sort of stuff that's happening there, it, it came out of a need to try to um, explain what was going on in my community. I always felt some of an outsider because I had this sort of speech problem, right? So I had, I really couldn't get engaged in any sort of conversation. It sort of comes on every now and then, right? It, I think it came from that, mm-hmm. you know. That uh, deficiency and being able to speak, you know, and so um, <clears throat> uh, I started to take a, I started to take creative writing classes. You know, when you go to UCLA Film School, one of the good things about it is that they teach you to be a total filmmaker, and I mean that it was sort of unstructured, it was chaotic. Um, you learn from students, um, and uh, they said, "Look, here's a camera, here's equipment. Come back with a film. Come back with something we haven't seen before." Otherwise, you're going to get crucified. And that was uh, the order of the day. Uh, I mean, I used to sit at the, the end of the quarter screenings, and God, they were so vicious. I mean, I mean, teachers would say, you know, um, yeah, that was a bunch of... But they wouldn't say crap, you know. They would say, there was there's some young ladies and kids here, they would say, that's, you know, right in front of you, you know. And uh, I remember... God, I was really parent, really frightened that they're going to destroy me, and so you develop this hard shell attitude, you know. And um, the idea was that you had to come up with something new, and and UCLA at the time was sort of anti Hollywood, so anything that was slick, um, you know, well lit and all that sort of thing, you were suspect. The role that um, that education does play. I mean, one who's gone to university and has a has different alternatives, so. You, you have to realize that there is this sort of distance now between you and the community. So it was more or less like a self sort of analysis to some extent right. and how it relates and, and how it's changed, and that's been a big difference, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like you to, um, if you can, kind of maybe walk us through just the whole production <laughs> process of, of Killer Sheep. Like, you have the script. I mean, how did you go about casting it and, and working with actors? I mean, you, you obviously work with a lot of non-actors, mm-hmm. In the, in the piece, and maybe you could talk about your feelings about that in terms of, um, you know, accurate representation of, of, of a black community on screen. Um, I wrote the screenplay, and I forget how many pages it was, but, um, um, I, you know, when I started making films, particularly at UCLA, you start using everybody, your friends and things like that, and um, you're exploring people. 
you know, uh, you can't pay him anything, of course. And so, you know, unfortunately, you know, I contributed to a lot of things like, you know, buy him drinks or something like that. And that was the extent of the pay in a sense. But you um, you try to get people who fit the role. And I find you, it, because they're not actors, you really don't have to really work with them, sort of get them into that character. They're already there, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's a matter of getting them, you know, familiar, you know, with filmmaking and not shy about, you know, doing what they're supposed to do. And um, um, But mostly it was selecting friends that I grew up with. And, uh, and when we worked on, mostly on the weekends over a long period of time, and, you know, we, we shot all over the community. And I must say this about the community at the time. It was very helpful because, um, you know, they were really unsophisticated in terms of filmmaking. Now you go, everyone wants a dollar or a hundred dollars, whatever it is, you know. Uh, and they, they were very much aware. Um, but then uh, they were always wanting to help someone who was trying to help themselves. You know, so I get a lot of help from people in the liquor stores and things like that uh, in the community. And because they, and they, they said, boy, I'm going to make it, you know, and some, well, say something like that, you know. And or these other guys, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. but at the same time, it's sort of embarrassing because I, I was two two minds. One, um, when I was involved in film, um, people also used to say say that you're a fool, you know, because you, you know you're never gonna make it, you know, you know this is a white man's world or something like that, and, and no one has ever heard of anyone being in film, you know, yeah. and. Um, so I didn't really tell people I was involved in film until I had to. <laughs> you know, and my mother, everyone, there was really a lot of mystification, you know, and it was another world. And, um, like, I didn't realize it until I got into college that this thing exists, you know. Right. And uh, I would have been, you know, they would have understood if I said I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Oh, yeah, they, they understand that, but to be a filmmaker. And I can certainly understand why, you know, because, you know, if you have to wait 20 years to get a job, you know, that's pretty maddening. Yeah, well, you were at UCLA at the same time as Hyla Dreamer mm-hmm. and Julie Dash, I think, mm-hmm. came a little later, and, and Larry Clark and mm-hmm. um, uh, Billy Woodbury and so forth. I mean, what kind of discussions did you all have about what you thought your prospects were going to be as filmmakers in the world beyond college? Well, well we didn't really... Discuss that. We discussed. We, I think we discussed mostly the moment and filmmaking, you know, and um, we were all sort of running around hustling and trying to help one another. Um, and I don't think any of us really thought, at least I never thought, and most people I talked to thought we were going to make a living by doing it. There was one person <clears throat> I think was probably a bit more advanced in his thinking that we were, and that's a guy by the name of John Mafanaka, who did a bunch of penitentiary series. One through three. <laughs> <laughs> and he really knew how to, to milk a thing. And um, <clears throat> he was, when he first walked into the school, he knew he wanted to make feature films, and he wanted to, to make money. And um, he was very honest and straightforward about it. And in fact, all of his films were feature films, I think, and, and very provocative, too. And he's one of these kind of people that he doesn't get the credit he deserves. Um, he was out there long before a lot of people that you recognize now. And uh, I guess because of the black exploitation period, he was also involved in that. As he was going to school, he's making films you know, in that same realm. And um, he's just been overlooked. Mm-hmm. But for the most of us, we were discussing... And I don't know if it was theory, I don't know if it was theory, but it was something. You know? <laughs> I, I think it was more practical. Um, Matters, and we were we were busy trying to form a cooperative or something, you know, a, a group, a film group. And you know, we spent um, 
self-criticism here. We spent days and months just trying to get a name, you know. And, and we get a name and someone wasn't there the last meeting. No, 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 I don't like that. We got to go back again, you know. And so we were still trying to get a name when I last left. So, <laughs> but it was a lot. It had a lot of hope. Yeah, a lot of hope. Right. How do you, how do you um, feel? I guess about the the term that Clyde Taylor is applied to. But he's back to here. Watch out. I know. We know each other. So. <laughs> but um, you know, he he refers to uh, the the work you guys generated in that period. And that period is like the L.A. Rebellion. Mm-hmm. You know, do you feel like uh, it was a successful rebellion? Well, two things. Clyde is a scholar. I'm not. You know, and he's done a lot of research and stuff like that. And I and I, I don't look at film the same way. You know, and I, I think sometimes it takes a scholar f- sort of maybe to find what was going on. I, we, we just were there, you know, in making films. And it, it wasn't to me, I mean, I wasn't conscious of being a part of a rebellion or being a, being a part of a protest. In a way, I guess we were certainly responding to what was going on in Hollywood because we were keeping these questions of these films don't represent us and so forth. We were also involved in a struggle with, with the department because we were and since a minority, and, you know, struggling, for, struggling for trying to get equipment and trying to get um, black teachers and uh, classes and things like that. But and we sort of we were together at one point, and uh, we helped each other. And um, like I said, we tried to form a group that we could never get jump started, and uh, we got close. But um, but looking back on it, uh, I mean, it's I think that's reserved for scholars to sort of. Mm-hmm. to deal with. Um, so much of the, the way in which we're, uh, I guess we're used to seeing black films promoted these days is uh, really through the filmmakers promoting themselves, and that doesn't really seem to be your game plan. You know, and I wonder, how do you feel about just that whole issue of having to go out and just, you know, be a huckster, hyper film? And, um, well, I think the problem um, has been, you know, when we started film, it was an art form. We, we never really thought of it, like I said earlier, as a business. So all our training was spent trying to learn filmmaking. And I think some of it should have been learned, um, dealt with promoting film. Because it, it is a business. In order to survive, you have to sort of deal with that. And people who have been very successful know how to play the game. Like Spike has been very successful. Julie Dash has been very successful in promoting Daughters of the Dust and so forth. In order to survive, you have to be viable. And you just can't live off most of these films I haven't made a penny off of, you know. And and people like Sleep with Anger, few people have seen it, you know. And so if I would have been out beating the you know, the bushes and stuff like that and the drums and everything else, maybe that may have helped a bit. Um, you know, but I but I, I think you really have to um, look at people like Spike as a model in in a certain sense, you know. I mean that's not my personality, you know, and so I have a problem problem doing it, you know. Um, but I may have to change because I pay these bills. You have to stand on, you know, see this movie here. And, and one of the things you find very, and people who are very successful, like when they go to sort of the IFP things, they're right there, even though the film isn't made, you know, they're there with all this material and stuff like that, you know, and saying, well, this is, you know, support this film. And so when is, well, it, it hasn't been shot yet. Oh, uh, but you still, yeah, and I get conned the same way. You see these airplanes flying over with these ribbons, you know, a Superman 4, you know. And, um, but it's all about hype, you know. And, uh, and I think in order to survive, you have to, to treat it as a business once the film is made. Or have an organization set up that will do it for you if you can't. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be one of the kind of major problems for, I mean, black filmmakers who are doing an alternative cinema is that a lot of times the people who are distributing the film don't seem to quite know what they're doing, you know, in terms of getting it to, uh, in particular, like a core audience or a black audience, you know. And I'm wondering with the with the new film that you have uh, with, with Glass Shield, I mean, you have a number of very recognizable faces in it, you know what I mean? Is, there a strategy? Is there, you know, a battle plan around trying to maybe use some of those folks to go out and promote the film too? Well, that's that's the whole point about about marketing and, and distribution. Um, wow. When um, I think you have to get involved. You know, you really have to uh, be on top of people because when we did the Sleep with Anger, we tried to get involved with with, with marketing, and the company said. Um, we're the experts, you know. You, you know, just you made the movie, uh, and that's good. But we know what we're doing. That was a mistake. Never, you know, uh, I want to do that again. A lot of these companies don't interact or do business with black media and so forth. The journals and they, they don't, they, they don't have an ongoing relationship. Mm-hmm. So every time it's like reinventing the wheel. With, like, who do we talk to, and so forth, and nobody knows, and and nobody wants to know. Even when you suggest, you know, you can put fifty dollars in a in a in a religious magazine, one of these church magazines, and you get thousands of you know people to look at it. Wouldn't do it, you know, and things like that. It's they get stuck in a rut, you know, and it's like well, I'm being paid to do this, so you can't, you know, I don't, you know, encroach upon my what I do. Um, but now uh, there's organization definitely trying to get involved, you know, like Julie Dash, I keep saying, well, look at Julie Dash's film. It's a wonderful film. Um, it didn't have any recognizable stars. I mean, it had stars that most people in the community may know, but in general, um, there wasn't like a, like a Danny Glover or someone who sort of mainstream. And, you know, they just made the sleep with anger look like it was, a, you know, I mean, they just outdistanced in terms of, of, of gross. And and you point this out to these guys. You said, look, these guys, you know, because they had a commitment and a passion to to get this film out. Mm-hmm. You know what happened here? And you had all the, you had, you know, excellent reviews. You know, some of the best reviews that were put out that year. Um, stars, you know, and what happened? I don't know. So. Um, <laughs> Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.